Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. And a jolly good morning to you. I'm Kathy Kayla, and thank you so much for joining me on this Monday. And uh, gee whiz, aren't we having just the most wonderful, wonderful weather? When we look around us, there is so much to feel blessed about that no matter what is happening in South Africa, when we've got a positive and a hopeful attitude, it changes everything. Now, as we, as we get a little bit of distance from the pandemic known as COVID-19, one looks back and we need to try and understand In order to understand where we're going, we need to understand what happened during the pandemic. I think it was Mahatma Gandhi who said society is judged by how they treat the most vulnerable or by how we treat the most vulnerable. And certainly during the COVID-19 pandemic, the elderly were, without a question, the most vulnerable sector of the population in every country. Think about it, right? So many isolated, not only vulnerable to to the actual COVID pandemic itself, but the isolation that they were put into. What's so interesting is that think about your life, right? If you think about your life, you're born, you're born into a family, you may have siblings, you constantly have this growing sphere of influence, friends, associates, right throughout your life. Until you retire. When you retire, you no longer have new people, generally speaking, coming into your environment. And it can be very, very isolating. You know, you no longer have a work environment where you're meeting new people and exposed to new people, new ideas, a a raison d'etre, the reason to get up in the morning, your reason for being, uh, the reason to get out of bed in the morning. And along comes this pandemic where you are completely isolated. I mean, we all heard the stories of horror about older people who were isolated and only, you know, they passed away and and they only were found weeks or months later. That's a level of isolation that until you're there, one doesn't really understand it. Personally, when I think about aging, inside, you know, it's, it's the outside that's getting older. But inside, I'm still a 20-year-old. <laughs> I still like to listen to rock and do all these wonderful things that I was doing in my 20s, maybe not so rec- recklessly because uh, I now have a little bit of wisdom. But the point is, is that inside we still feel the same, but it's the outside that ages. I thought, you know, we actually do need to speak to some experts who have done research to understand what the impact on the aging population was of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we have got hold of the best possible expert on this, and that's Dr. Leon Geffen. He's the executive director at the Samson 
Institute of Aging, based in Cape Town, and he joins us now. By the way, if you'd like, if you've got any questions, comments, I'd love to hear from you. Three four five one nine. If you want to send an SMS, that number again, three four five one nine, or you can get hold of me on Telegram, and that number is zero six one eight nine five. Say it with me, one zero one nine. So, uh, without any further ado, let's. Uh, catch up with what's happening in the research. Joining us is Dr. Leon Geffen. As I said, he's the Executive Director at the Samson Institute for Aging. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Kathy. Thank you very much for having me on, and uh, good morning to all the listeners. It's an absolute pleasure. Do you also still feel like you're in your 20s inside? Uh, absolutely. I don't know. Actually, no, Kathy. I, I, you know, I, as I'm getting older, uh, and I'm almost 60, I turn 60 next year. In fact, I embrace getting older. The alternative is actually... Uh, not appealing, uh, yes. <laughs> not appealing, uh, as you say. I mean, you know, uh, the real tragedy is for, for, for people not to get old, uh, not to get older, because the alternative is to die young. Absolutely. And uh, I'm sure there are many listeners, and we, we probably know many people who have um, passed away at a younger age. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a privilege to not many. Yeah. Uh, you know, you think of the, the horrible events that happen around war and, uh, how younger people who are, uh, get, you know, get dying in wars, etc., and, and younger people who die of illness. Um, whether, you know, and all the other forms of, uh, reasons that people die at a young age. So, so, so the alternative to getting older is, is, is not really a pleasant one and not a good one either. Having said that, um, getting older should be something we celebrate, but also getting older comes with a lot of challenges and, and a lot of difficulties. And, um, and unfortunately, as much as science, society pays lip service to, 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 to the wisdom and how we should be celebrating older people, we actually don't. You know, I, I, I think if you think about sort of family events and family gatherings, uh, often, uh, an older person will come and, uh, you know, you think about um, the various uh, celebrations that we should be having with older people, whether it's a, a, a festival or a, a family event or a Shabbos where you sit around at a dinner table. The older person, their opinion is not valued. We hear all the younger people talking about the activities and everything that they've done in the week and how busy they are and what they're achieving. And no one sits back and sort of takes a breath and says to the older person, well, how's your week been? What have you done? Um you know, tell us a little bit about your life. Um, let's learn a little bit about your life. So, so we often think about and we talk and pay lip service to the wisdom of older people, but we actually very seldom uh, include them in things around decision making, uh, participation in society, participation in events. We think that older people have lost the ability to 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 learn, to expand their horizons, and it's complete nonsense. Uh, older people are extremely valuable uh, in society and, and we need to, to celebrate them and we need to welcome them and we need to provide a society that's age-friendly to them. It's so interesting because as you were speaking, it's, it's, it's really true. I mean, within our own tradition, one is supposed to revere the elderly, right, and revere elders, starting with your parents, Kibudava Aim. You are not allowed to sit in the seat that your parents would inhabit. You, I mean, there, there's so many aspects to honoring older generations. When did it change? I mean, 
look, I don't expect you to have the answer to this because it's more of a, you know, just a general question. But when did it change that that young people become revered rather than revering wisdom? I, I, I don't think it's an either or. And I don't think we should sort of make it a zero-sum game. We're revering younger people, not revering older people. We're revering older people and not revering younger people. I, I think, first of all, everyone has, should be revered. Every human being who walks this planet should be revered. We should, you know, we should be a, a, a society that's built on human rights and human dignity and uh, respect for everyone. And, but yeah, intergenerational conflict. I mean, that, that is becoming, that is becoming a new, a, a, a really interesting and new area for, for research. And, and the, the interesting thing is intergenerational conflict has probably existed for millennia. I mean, ever since, uh, you know, at what point does the younger generation turn around to the older generation and say, you know, sort of, sort of move on. It's time for us to take over. You know, um, the question is, should one be turning around to someone and saying, move on, move over merely because you have hit the age of 60 or 65 or 70 or 80? A lot of it should be, we should be, you know, everyone should have a right to be part of society. Uh, when did intergenerational conflict start? Uh, probably the first time uh, human beings walked this planet uh, and uh, a younger child turned around to the mom and said, or the dad and said, um, I want to go out and seek my own fortune and I want to go do my own hunting uh, or I want to go creep out of the cave and leave you behind um, and please don't control me. But is intergenerational conflict more in our current society than in the past? I think it's very hard to, to, to answer that in a scientific way. I mean, we all have our views on that. But, you know, older people have sent younger people out to war. I mean, you know, you think about who died in the First World War, the Second World War, and all the wars that came. It was older people who sent younger people out. Therefore, younger people have a, a sort of a right to be angry with older people. Um, if you look at uh, global warming today and, and, and climate change, um, people point fingers and say, well, it's the older generation that's destroyed the planet for us. Uh, because uh, of climate change, and, uh, and therefore uh, you as an older generation have no role, no role to play in this. That's not true, because the older generation have made the society what it is today in terms of the good and the bad. You know, uh, we need to really celebrate uh, people who overcame the struggle against apartheid. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be living in a free and democratic society as we are today had yeah. not been for the generations that came before us. So we need to celebrate. So when did this intergenerational conflict start? I would imagine uh, from the from from the, from the word first go. time some adolescent <laughs> or uh, decided uh, at the age of of adolescence or with their frontal lobes not being fully developed, wanting to challenge the the authority of their parents. Yeah. So probably uh, hundred fifty thousand years ago, whenever we walked the planet for the first time as human beings. My guest is Dr. Leon Geffen. We're talking about the latest research or we will be talking about the latest research and the effects of COVID-19 on the older population. Dr. Geffen is the Executive Director at the Samson Institute for Aging. I'm Kathy Kayla, and this is Diskem Medical Monday. If you'd like to get in touch with me, this is how you do it. You're welcome to weigh in on the discussion. You're welcome to ask any questions. I promise I will do that. I will ask, I will pose them to, to my guests this morning. You can either send me a text on SMS, and that number is 34519. Those SMSs are charged at 1 Rand 50. Alternatively, you can send me a telegram if you have the app. And that number is 61 
0891-895-1019. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Thank you for joining me. I'm Kathy Kayla, and this is Discam Medical Monday, and we're talking about the latest research into aging and also the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the aged in our population. My guest this morning, very, very uh, illustrious guest, Dr. Leon Geffen. He's the executive director at the Samson Institute for Aging. They are based in Cape Town. And the message coming through from Peter. Thank you so much, Peter. I really appreciate this. Uh, Peter wants to know, he says, my wife and I found that our friends who isolated themselves during the COVID pandemic visibly aged dramatically compared to those who didn't. I feel that often we treat the disease instead of the people. What was the impact of the COVID isolation on physical aging of people? I absolutely love this. It's so it's so multidimensional, your question. So uh, let's actually just put that straight to my guest. Dr. Geffen, what's your thought? Or what? Okay, in fact, so you know what? Never mind the thoughts. What does the research say? Because I know you okay, have so all this research. Oh, okay, so um, Kathy, yeah, we're still we're still un- untangling all of this. Um, what we can say for sure is that older persons had a, a very, very much more higher mortality than younger people, and from the age of sixty upwards, for every decade of aging, so from sixty to seventy, seventy to eighty, eighty to ninety, your risk of dying if you got COVID uh, went up exponentially. So in South Africa, we estimate we had over 300,000 deaths due to COVID, probably about just over 200 to 220,000 of them occurred in older people, people 60 plus. So the first thing we should say is that if you were older and you got COVID, there was a, an incredibly high risk of mortality and dying from, for, uh, compared to the average population or the younger population. So... Uh, so that's something we need to understand and, 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 and need to, to, to put into the, to put into perspective. So, um, if you die from COVID, you clearly weren't going to get older. You, you were dead. Um, and that's a, and, 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 and it's, and, and many people passed away who shouldn't have passed away, um, had we been able to, to prevent them from getting COVID. So, um, then we come on to the societal aspects in terms of, the, the personal life of someone who has come through COVID, come through either having had COVID um, or not had COVID, but has been under lockdown or under or, or isolated to it. Yes, it had a significant impact on their lives. That many people uh, lost their social connection, that they uh, became deconditioned. They weren't able to go out and exercise, walk, um connect with their families, connect with their friends, uh, possibly eat as well as they should have, uh, lost income, uh, all of those things that that, that uh, arose from COVID. Did people age more or more rapidly? Well, some did and maybe some didn't, okay? And we can always report back on the anecdotal aspects of, uh, you know, I'm aware of older people who, some of whom, Thrived during lockdown. Uh, it sounds bizarre, um, but they 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 enjoy being on their own. Uh, similarly, I can report from my clinical practice of people who who who, who had devastated lives. Um, they didn't see their grandchildren. They didn't see their children. Whatever communication they had, 
was was via either Zoom or Skype if they had the opportunity to do that, or WhatsApp, or um, waving at someone through a window, um, not actually having physical contact. And the only uh, contact they had with the outside world was the fear of going out to buy uh, their milk and bread and meat and fish or vegetables from the local supermarket when they could or have someone deliver it to their door and, and go and collect it from the door. So, yes, it, it is terrible. Um, as to exactly quantifying how bad it was for certain individuals, for some it was and some, for some it wasn't. It possibly did have a greater impact on, on more people. Interesting studies that are coming out is that um, people who lived in care homes had the obviously care homes were the, were, were the most impacted through COVID because of the rapid spread and the higher number, uh, higher mortality in care homes. However, for people living in congregate or care home settings, and this is stuff, some stuff that's coming out of the European Union at the moment, um, in terms of looking at their quality of life, for those that lived in congregate settings, their quality of life wasn't terribly affected, as opposed to those who were living in community uh, and living isolated lives within the greater community. Um, so so there has been, uh, you know, varying results coming out of the various studies. What we do know is for, it had, COVID's had a terrible impact on, on and, and for every individual, there's a story to be told. And what we did was we did with the best of knowledge at the time, and we can always look at hindsight and say, oh, well, we did this wrong, we did that wrong. Yes, we should, or society should not have locked down because of the economic impact. And there were some people who said, no, we mustn't lock down. And uh, in countries that didn't lock down, they had higher mortality from COVID. And in countries that did lock down, they had lower mortality. But then there was the social impact and the economic impact. So all of these things are, 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 are it, it's not a, a, a black and white answer. It's not one thing or the other. It's very nuanced and it's, and it's, and it's very difficult to, to, to give you a simple answer. Did some people, uh, did people, older people do worse under COVID, uh, who, who, because of lockdown or not? I think, I think, I think the question that, that the listener's asking is more about, you know, the physical aging, um, where people who locked down seem to have aged physically, mentally. I mean, the mental impact on the aged population of COVID-19 is massive. You know, you've got a vulnerable population that are now living in fear, constant fear. Mm. They're in isolation. Often they don't have the skills to reach out through technology like many other sectors of the population. Uh, what does the research say about that? The research shows that it's, 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 there's multiple answers to that. It was neither bad nor good. There was good for some and there was bad for others. So... Did you physically age? Yes, of course, you've aged by two years. We were in lockdown for two years. So someone who was uh, relatively frail to begin with um, at the beginning of COVID, two years later, would be much frailer. Uh, someone who was relatively robust would be, and, and maintain all their function, would be relatively robust at the end of the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Um, and what we tend to, you know, if we look at it in reverse, if you look at a, a child who's one year old at the onset of COVID, and then you go and see them for two years, and you see them two years later, and they're three years old, and they're now walking, they're talking, they're engaging with the society. And we look and say, my goodness, how have you grown? And they've grown well. And we look at it in the reverse in society, that when you're 18 and you happen to be a little bit frail, when you've seen two years later because you've been in lockdown, at 82 you're going to be significantly frailer. No, that's the reality of life. 
Um, another listener, Carol Kruger. Nice to hear from you, Carol. Thank you so much for weighing in. She says, Morning, Kathy. My husband and I are in our mid-70s. We have found friends who have moved into a retirement village who have also aged terribly. So I think that that also brings another aspect to it, is that when you have to do the skills, and I remember speaking to a geriatrician about this, and he was explaining that when you have an elderly parent who perhaps is doing their buttons and they're doing it very slowly, don't be impatient. Let them do it because if you start doing their buttons for them, they're going to lose that as a skill. The same goes for emailing, driving, living independently, which I find very interesting. You know, what's your thought of independent living and at what point one should consider not living independently anymore is there such a yeah. is there such a time well, there's a few elements that is one is making people disabled because i'm sitting with someone who needs to get dressed and i'm in a rush to get get going and and get no they can't they can't tie their shoelaces as quick as i can and therefore oh please let me just tie your shoelaces and get on with it or maybe i really want to help you and i'm going to oh you look your fingers look a little bit sort of um, skew or you seem to have a little bit of difficulty bending, I'm going to just do your shoelaces for you. Well, that disables the person. Uh, so we need to look at each person and say, what are your abilities and what do you wish to do and what do you wish to have done for you? And if you've got the capacity to do something for you, we should not disable you by doing it for you. So that's, that's really important. And I think part of what happens in terms of moving into a care facility is that uh, people... Uh, people are rushed for time. They've got carers around and, oh, well, let me just do this for you. I'll, I'll tie your bra for you. I'll, I'll help you brush your teeth. I'll uh, put the shower on for you. So absolutely, yes, we tend to take people and we disable them. However, if we become person-centered and we turn around and say, what is it that you wish for? What would you wish for me to be able to do for you? What do you, what do you think you can do for yourself? What do you wish to be able to carry on doing? And if someone turns around and says, you know, I've got really sore arms and shoulders. And yes, I can do my, my, my bra and I can tie my shoelaces, but I really have such great difficulty and I'd like you to just help me do that. You can turn around and say, well, maybe we could try and treat your pain and then you can become more able again. The person says, oh, that's wonderful. Yes, I would love to have my pain treated and I'd love to be able to do my shoes and my bra again. Alternatively, someone says, I really, I've tried all this pain medication. I've tried everything and, and I, I know I can feed myself, but I can't do my bra and I can't do my, my, my shoelaces. Please, can you help me with it? That's a very different approach to saying to someone, I'm going to do it for you. So the one is enabling the person to do the things that they wish for, that it's a person-centered approach, engaging with them, as opposed to saying, I'm just going to take over the responsibility and reduce your autonomy in terms of being able to do these things. And often that's what happens in when people do move into care homes, um, and that's, and that should be discouraged completely at the way that care home manages, uh, their residents and how they engage with and how they start for treating people. Yeah. It's so interesting about, you know, when we want to help a parent, an older person tie their shoes, whatever, it's coming from a good place. It's not coming from a place where we realize or think for half a second that we are ultimately taking away the skill or the ability yeah. to do that for themselves, which is interesting. 
which is very but interesting. Yeah, sorry, but the, 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 possibly the best place would be to ask, would you like help? Would you like assistance? How would you like me to help you if you need it? Some people would turn around and say, go away. I don't want any help. And they may need a lot of help. And that's also a very frustrating thing that families and friends have to deal with, that someone's refusing all forms of help. And we know that they're at risk and we know that the person's vulnerable. But it's that person's choice and that person's right to make a decision over how they wish to live their lives. And that's what's key to working with older people, that we need to allow them to have their voice and to say what they wish for. Someone may turn around and say, I don't wish to move into the old age home. I don't want to go live in that retirement village. I want to carry on living in my apartment. Well, then we need to start asking, what does it take to, for you to live in your apartment? Have you got the financial resources? Do you... Are you able to do your shopping and your cooking and your cleaning? And if you can't, is there someone who can assist you with that? And it may be a family member, it may be a friend, etc. But let's see what it takes from society to try and enable people to live their independent life and the best life that they possibly can be. But it is about engaging with the person, asking them what they wish for and what, what they would like to be assisted with if they need assistance. I'm Kathy Kaler. This is the Diskim Medical Monday, and thank you so much for joining me this, this morning. My guest is Dr. Leon Geffen. He's the executive director at the Samson Institute for Aging, and they're based in Cape Town. We're talking about aging. We're talking about the latest research and the effects of COVID on older populations. You're talking about a vulnerable sector of the population. You're aged, right? you Perhaps you're not as frisky as you used to be. Perhaps things have slowed down a little bit. And perhaps you need more care. You're not quite as independent. That makes you vulnerable. When you need other people, that's what vulnerability means. And, um, you know, the COVID pandemic, I mean, we've spoken about how the aged were isolated, living in fear, because you know, if uh, and I know that it did unfortunately happen at a number of of aged homes and facilities, where somebody came in, a staff member or nursing staff, whatever it was, with the pandemic, and it just went crazy, and people unfortunately died. But living with that fear all the time, um, what was the what does the research say about the mental impact? on the aged community of COVID-19, Doctor? Yeah. So what we do know, what we, and so once again, um, it's still very early days. Um, what we do know, and in fact, this is one of the areas that we are at the moment looking at in terms of, uh, because fortuitously, just before COVID, what we had been doing from our, from, from CIFOR, the Samson Institute for Aging Research, um, was we'd done large community surveys on the health and well-being of older persons. Uh, and these were people living in their communities, relatively healthy or well, understanding it. And um, COVID's come along. So we, we had surveyed many thousands of people prior to the COVID pandemic. And then COVID came along. And during one of the periods of um, when the lockdown started being eased, we went back into the communities and started doing surveys again, started doing these surveys. So we've now just started to look at the data. We haven't published the data. Um, but it, it, so we, we've got a lot of information about um, pre-COVID, during the COVID pandemic. We haven't looked at the 
uh, at these populations just post the COVID pandemic to see how people have recovered. Um, that we will be doing next year. Um, but it appears that people experienced a lot of loneliness. Um, there was a, a, a reduction in people's social engagement. Uh, that's, that's, that's clear. That's almost a non sequitur that, you know, COVID pandemic stopped you from being able to do uh, the things that you want to do in terms of going out. In terms of people's function, in terms of their ability to do their daily activities, washing, bathing, dressing, there didn't appear to be that much of an effect on that. So we didn't see a massive decline in people's functional ability. But in terms of their mood, um, there was there were slight changes in mood. Um, and people, as I say, people experienced a lot more loneliness during that period. No uh, question. Yeah, I mean, I remember speaking to a friend of mine and her father's in a, in a care home here in Johannesburg. Um, but he's deaf. So he's, he's lost his, he's lost his hearing due to aging. And she couldn't talk to him on the telephone. He couldn't, he didn't have a connection with his grandchildren, especially during lockdown. And, and our aged homes here were locked down, uh, rightly so. But they were locked down up until I think it was middle of this year, which is a very long time. It's two and a half years not seeing your family, not seeing your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. And, you know, you're just surrounded by old people who are in the same very, very sad mindset as you are. It's Kathy, I think that's a, that's a transference from people who are living in the community. So just a little bit about my story. I'm, I'm now the executive director at Highlands House as well, and I've been a GP for 30 years. And, and, uh, so, so two years in, in May 2020, when, you know, we, from sci-fi and the research we'd been doing, uh, in sort of February 2020, we, we redirected all our research at sci-fi into COVID because we realized what was happening uh, globally and through contacts that uh, working with colleagues of ours from the WHO and through um, other research institutes, seeing what was happening in, in, in the global north, particularly Italy um, and, and Singapore, uh, Hong Kong, um, Canada, what was happening in care homes, etc. So we refocused all our, our research over there. And then just fortuitously, in, in, well, some, for some odd reason, in May 2020, I'd had a long connection with Highlands House in Cape Town. Um, uh, sort of, I, I got involved in terms of, of, of looking at how we could try and mitigate and prevent the spread of COVID within the home. Um, and now, uh, sort of now in sort of November 2022, I'm still sitting in the chair now as the executive director of Highlands House, um, wearing my hats for research and a little bit of clinical practice and, and, and here at Highlands House. So we've got a lot of information. My anecdotal stories that I've picked up is to, 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 to respond to that issue about how did people in old age homes, let's call them old age homes, the, 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 the term in South Africa is residential care facilities, old age homes is, is a term that's relatively gone out of, real, uh, out of use generally. So nursing homes, re, residential care facilities. We have this perception from, from people outside that life within an old age home must have been terrible because of all the lockdown. Um, no, well, we were hearing, we were hearing from, from people my, who were there. My experience, my experience is certainly from the Hans House community. And, and once again, 
for years and years and years, we've been doing quality of life surveys at Highland House. Um, yes, quality of life for certain things did change. But the quality of life in terms of um, are you able to go out when you wish to? So people said no, whereas previously they were. Are you able to? But there was many aspects of life that actually improved. Okay? And other, what we also need to realize is that within the community over here of, of Highlands House, the, the residents, they were having contact. They were having contact with their colleagues and their, their friends. People have lived here for, for at least five, six years. M many of them have lived here for longer. So they were seeing their friends. They were having breakfast, lunch, and supper. They were socially engaging with all their friends who they had made in what we call the village of Highlands House over that period. No, they didn't see them, their children. They didn't see their grandchildren. But then we must also remember that for the vast majority of residents who live at Highland House or any of your care facilities, and I would imagine Sandringham Garden is much the same, many of their children actually live overseas, so they wouldn't have seen them anyway. And for the families that were living here, it was terrible because you couldn't come and visit your granny or your grandpa or your mom or your dad or possibly your husband or your wife. Um, and when someone became ill, it was terrible to know that, that you couldn't come and visit. But for the vast majority of our residents, they don't have direct family in Cape Town. Many of their children are living overseas and they see them once a year or once every two years. Uh, I'm not quite sure what happens at Sandringham Gardens and what the, the breakdown of, of, of residents over there with children being I know it's pretty high. Jail. Yeah, yeah. I know it is pretty high. But, but so, all the same, so, you've got, you've got other relatives. Do you know what I mean? Who would come and see you and bring relatives. children and, yeah. It does happen, but it's, but having had, but having your close connections within the home and the feeling of safety and security and having those connections made a difference. So one of the studies that, uh, hasn't been published was in coming out of the Netherlands. Um, and, and this is once again, just through direct communication with colleagues of mine in the Netherlands, where they looked at the quality of life of older people living in care homes versus those living in the community. And um, the quality of life of people living in the care home during the pandemic, this is, I'm talking about the early stage of the pandemic, we're talking about uh, a study that was reported to me uh, and was, we chatted about in um, uh, uh, last year, late, late last year, late 2021, where they looked at what had happened to the quality of life of residents in these care homes from May 2020 through to sort of April 2021. Um, they actually showed that the quality of life of the residents in the care homes was better than the quality of life of people who are living in the community because of their social connections not being destroyed to the level that uh, people thought they were. So that was interesting. Um, that's, that, pub that study hasn't been published, um, and we'll wait to see with it, but that was one of the reports that came out from the Netherlands. What research are you currently involved in with the uh, Samson um, Institute? Institute, yes. So um, we are. So uh, the work that we do is based at very much working in under-resourced and underserved communities. So it's in poorer communities. Uh, we're one of the very, very few research institutes in the global south focused on aging. Um, and the work that we're doing is looking at how we can improve the health and well-being of older persons by allowing or, or, or improving. Uh, access to service and when people come into healthcare facilities, how can we enable doctors and nurses who are assessing older people to improve the quality of care that they render to those older people? 
So um, we have developed a research instrument that's used um, and is now being used globally, well, by in South Africa, um, and it's been used, uh, interestingly, in, a, in an under-resourced community in Canada. Um, and now we're establishing, uh, we've got a seven African country study that we're doing, uh, looking at how we can improve uh, the assessment of older persons. Other work we're doing is looking exactly, as we mentioned, on the quality of life of older persons. We've worked very much in work developing policy. So 2021 to 2030 is the decade of healthy aging. It's been designated by the United Nations and World Health Organization, the decade for healthy aging. All uh, countries that are um, members of the United Nations and the WHO have signed up to this. And what we're doing is we're working on helping African countries develop their roadmaps to develop uh, improve the health and well-being of older persons. Uh, so that's the work we're doing. We're also working very closely with uh, local community-based organizations with them to try and uh, understand the health and well-being of their uh, client base who all happen to be older persons. So that's the sort of work that we are doing. Um, I just wanted to mention that being the decade of healthy aging, um, the decade of older persons, uh, what, what does that mean? And, and there's sort of four pillars that, 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 that make up uh, how we can try and make society better for older persons. And, and the one is overcoming what we call ageism. It's how we think about older people, how we feel about them, how we speak about older persons. Um, and language is important, uh, how we talk about older people. And, 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 and some of it is fairly derogatory and it does have an impact in the way we think about them and how we act towards older people. And that's really important to overcome. It's about how do we look at the environment in which older people are living and how can we make an environment more age-friendly. So what we also need to realize is that if we make an age-friendly environment, we're making an environment that's friendly towards other people who are disabled, people who are living with disability, people who are women and children, make a safe and secure environment uh, that's easily accessible uh, for older persons, we are having an impact on, on many other groups of people. Um, it's looking at how we can improve the health of older persons, how we can measure the health of older persons. What can we do to, to understand what is the health of our population and what is it needed to, to make sure that older people's health is improved and, and looked after so that their trajectory towards the end of life is not one lived with many years of disability and, and, and reducing that. And then the last area of, of, of great need is how do we start providing long-term care services? As someone cannot, as someone's uh, functional ability or the ability to do things changes, and coming back to the point that you made earlier about tying someone's shoelaces or do, disabling someone, how do we start providing what we call long-term care services? In other words, um, when someone can no longer do their cooking or their shopping or their managing their finances or start showing inability to do that, Who's going to provide those sort of services uh, through to who? Who's going to provide care for someone at the very end of their life when uh, they can no longer do any of the basic needs that they require, whether it's washing or bathing, getting in and out of bed? So those are the four pillars. And that's uh, we, uh, so we, we're actively engaging. Um, we are very involved with WHO on uh, working towards uh, understanding the long-term care service uh, environment and, and then also making a, a difference on improving health. So we're working very actively on those two, two pillars. Dr. Leon Geffen, thank you very, very much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. I wish you all the best with your research, and hopefully we will get a chance to 
speak again once your research is uh, you know all put together and you're ready to release it. Thank you very, very much. That's Dr. Leon Geffen. He's executive director at the Samson Institute for Aging. We've been talking about aging, and um, the United Nations actually put out their research, and these are their specific findings of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic on older persons. So looking at life and death, the fatality rates are five times higher than the global average in an aged population. An estimated 66% of people aged 70 and over have at least one underlying health condition. So, of course, that would made a huge impact. Also looking at vulnerability. This was also one of their findings. The essential care that older persons often rely on is under pressure. Almost half of the COVID-19 deaths in Europe occurred in long-term care settings and older women often provide care for older relatives, increasing their risk to infections. Another finding was that uh, there was a finding with abuse and neglect. In 2017, one in six older persons were subjected to abuse. With lockdowns and reduced care, violence against older persons was on the rise. The economic well-being... So those are those are the cons. These are the pros. The economic well-being. The pandemic may significantly lower older persons' incomes and living standards. Oh, sorry, these are not the pros. <laughs> Already less than 20% of older persons of retirement age um, are receiving a pension. Mental health. Physical distancing can take a heavy toll on our mental health. Absolutely, people need people. That wasn't just... Uh, you know, something that Barbara Streisand sang. Uh, living alone and being more digitally included than others, the risks are higher for older persons. And responders, older persons are not, not just victims, they are also responding. What they found during the pandemic is that older healthcare workers, uh, carers, were among many essential service providers which is incredible because if you think about it, if you've got a, a unit that is a, a closed unit where there's nobody from outside allowed to go in because you don't want to, you have to mitigate and manage that risk of infection coming into your institution, then, you know, often the people who are already there and who are able-bodied and who are perhaps, you know, youthful and willing and they have this attitude of, you know, I want to help are going to be able to help and stand in as carers, which I think is absolutely an amazing testament to the human spirit. And isn't that what it's all about? You know, often I think I wish that I'd had the wisdom that I have today, I wish I'd had in my 20s, in my 30s, in my 40s. But you know what? Alas, the body must age. <laughs> and uh, the wisdom, we need to find a way to pass it on. And maybe that's why often grandparents and grandchildren have a better relationship than parents and children. You know, it seems to skip that generation. Anyhow, thank you so much to uh, to my guest, Dr. Leon Geffen. He's executive director at, Samson, at the Samson Institute for Aging. They are based at Highlands House in Cape Town. I'm sure if you've got any research 
you want to have a chat, you can get hold of him there. And uh, that brings to end to the end Discem Medical Monday, talking about aging, the latest research, and the effects of COVID on the older population. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for all the messages. Unfortunately, I didn't, I wasn't able to get through to all of them because we just ran out of time. But I wish you a wonderful, wonderful week, and I will be back next Monday for more Discem Medical Monday. I'm Kathy Kayla. This is over and out.